You are listening to the Empowering Indian Expats podcast. If you are an Indian living abroad, feeling stuck in an average 9 to 5 or a job or business that's not helping you reach your full potential, this is the podcast to tune in where you find your role models and learn from their dream struggle victory stories. This is your host Ehsan Ali, a long-time IT professional living in Sydney, Australia, who has made it his mission to find and unpack the stories and strategies and life lessons of successful and inspiring Indian expats to help you and I reach our full potential. I'm excited to speak to our guest this week, Vijay Solanki. Vijay excelled in his marketing career working across Europe and Australia, and a couple of years back he started his own venture, which is a SaaS platform to help children with mental health. I'm keen to know about his transition into entrepreneurship, the excitement, challenges and successes he has had so far and what's his vision for his business. So without further ado, let's talk to Vijay. Hey Vijay, welcome to the show. Hey Sam, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you on uh, the Empowering Indian Expats podcast, Vijay. You have a very unique corporate to entrepreneurship journey. And I also like your Queen accent. So there's a lot we would uh, go through. Tell us a little bit about uh, yourself before we go into your corporate to entrepreneurship journey. Yeah, so a couple of confessions. I'm a coconut. And what I mean by that was I'm the product of two wonderful Indian parents. I was born in Nairobi in Kenya and at the age of three my father moved us from Kenya to the UK and rather than moving into one of the Indian communities for a bunch of reasons my my mum and dad chose to move to a town called York in Yorkshire and for many years I was the only non-white person that I knew. So so that meant for quite an interesting upbringing and I think as a result of that I've clearly adopted a very British accent. <laughs> and yeah, as you said, before we started the podcast, I've spent most of my life in in the UK, a bit of time in other countries, and have been here in Australia for just over six and a half years. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, all your life, you've been in marketing, if I've got it right, Vijay. So my story is, and, and there are very many Indian components to my upbringing, <laughs> Uh, my story is at, uh, at school in, in the desire to keep an Indian mother happy. I, I chose to go to medical school. And when I look back, I'm like, why did I do that? I, I literally did it because I knew my mum wanted a doctor like every Indian mum or many Indian mums. I, I didn't really enjoy a lot of medicine, but I enjoyed sociology. I enjoyed psychology. So after a couple of years, I plucked up the courage. I still remember the conversation. I was so nervous to talk to my mum. Dad was like, do whatever you want. Mum was like, are you sure? And explained very carefully to my mother that uh, medicine wasn't for me. I was very sorry, but I was enjoying psychology. And in the final year of psychology, I was trying to figure out, I had all my friends that were medics. I'm like, what am I going to do? And I got a um, business might be interesting. And I managed to get an internship with Procter & Gamble in the north of, north of England, it, where I went to university. And I had a boss who said, applied psychology in business. Well, that's called marketing. That's what I think you might want to do. And so I joined Unilever in their brand management scheme and and learned what I call five P's marketing. Because some people think of marketing as 
um, you know, the communication, the coloring in department, but Unilever teaches you that marketing just means putting the, the customer at the center of the business, regardless of everything else, product, price, supply chain. So that was my corporate upbringing. After that, I guess the short version is I evolved into more and more digitally orientated roles. I've always had a big passion for innovation, a big interest in, in, in two fundamental things. The psychologist in me is all about why do people do what they do, mm. whether that's outside. And so that's useful, you know, building, thinking about marketing, building new services, but also internally. Why do people do what they do inside the organization? So I, I wake up most mornings thinking about that. And then the second thing is solving old problems in new ways, whether that's in a big corporate, whether that's in a small startup. They're probably the two things that, that drive me and they would be the common threads of everything I've done in the last 28 years. 28 years, that's a pretty long time, man. So it was it was all marketing and you said digital innovation. So was it always marketing or you handled any other areas of business as well? So yeah, look, I think in Unilever, the kind of grown-up jobs I did there were managing Dove, for example. So the relationship. Oh no, the no, no, Dove. one brand, one brand. The brand, but but that means defining and launching new products, creating advertising, making packaging, deciding on pricing, deciding on sales strategy, working on the margins of the product. I think, so essentially, I, I always describe the role of a brand manager in a company like Unilever as a mini MD, because yeah. you're actually managing the whole mix. So that's what marketing meant in Unilever. In the middle of my career, I did probably what marketing is more commonly known for, which is marketing in a media company. So in a, in a company that's, that's called Global, Global, they own, they're the biggest commercial radio station in the UK, based in Leicester Square in the middle of London. And there I did do kind of what most people think is marketing, which is advertising, PR, promotions, events. So I always have this funny thing, which is asking people, often at conferences, I used to do a lot of speaking around marketing about 10 years ago. And I would say, what's the definition of marketing? And people would rush out and get their textbooks and look up <laughs> and they'd go, it's this, and it's, you know, fulfilling a consumer need. And I'd be like, fantastic. And we'd write it all down on flip charts. And then I shut, flip, close the flip chart and say, do you know what the real answer is? What's the definition of marketing? And what would you say? It's whatever the CEO thinks it is. Interesting. Why is that? Well, if you think about it, the problem with marketing as a word is it means everything and nothing. It's good and bad. Scotty from marketing not doesn't sound very positive. You know, that's a phrase I hear a lot in Australia. So for, for, for some people, marketing is in some businesses I've walked into the coloring in department in other businesses, they make the ads in other businesses, they run the promotions in Unilever. They do everything customer centered. So the first thing you do when you join a company, whether you're going to be an employee, whether you're building it as a startup, whether you're going to join as a consultant, is find the most senior people and go and ask them. It's marketing. And that, that is the definition that you're dealing with today. Now, if you're going in as a CMO, as a marketing director, and, and it feels like the company, it, the marketing function is the coloring in department, you know, they do the ads, they do the brochures, they build the websites. 
then you might think about whether you want to join that company or you might want to think about, hey, there's a big opportunity mm. to take. I would always say marketing is something that's done by everyone. My job is just to make sure everyone in the business understands who the customer looks like, literally understands who they look like. You know, what is their name? Where do they live? What do they read? What websites do they go to? What brands of clothing do they wear? Maybe there's two or three different segments. Shouldn't just be marketing. Marketing's job is to make sure everyone, and therefore it's aligning the entire organization to those groups of customers. Mm. In many companies, the CEO does that. Mm. I think I got that. And I come from IT background, but the way I look at marketing is it's a precursor to sales. And uh, we are not in the world of uh, being smart salesmen and, you know, having uh, 300 closure techniques in your pocket. Those things don't work anymore. This, uh, this era is all about uh, trust and uh, relationship and a good marketing where you identify your avatar, so-called avatar, really well and understand their deeper fear, their deeper desires very, very well as, an, as a CEO and as well as the organization. And then you use all these tools to get out there and connect with your uh, avatar and uh, you know, the, that community and then create awareness about your product and services and how it can benefit them in removing their deepest fear or you know, enabling them to meet their aspirations. That's how I look at marketing. And then there's a sales guy who also needs to understand marketing very well. He may not be doing the precursor work, but he needs to understand the value that the and needs to understand the client or the avatar or the customer community and also understands how their their product and services can benefit or relieve them from pain. So I kind of understood the whole thing you said. It's an end-to-end game. It's not just coloring department, which was probably a perception, wrong perception, which no more the case. And even in corporates, I'm seeing the CMO's values have changed a lot. Earlier it was. Uh, where should I put this guy or lady? Should I put him or her under C- the CFO or CIO or where should I? That's how it used to be, but I think it has changed. Am I am I am I on track in terms of understanding marketing a little bit? I think, well, I think there's a spectrum. So my point is, there are some uh, organizations or industries where marketing is a support function, and it's at one end of the spectrum, and there are others where there are there's a very good understanding at the board level of who the customer is and as you say that their needs you know their fears their expectations but also who we are what do we stand for and you know my my test will be walking through an organization and asking anyone from the cleaner the receptionist to other members of the management team you know if we are brand x what is brand x what does that mean to you? And if you start to get, if you get like two or three variations on a theme, then then that's not bad. That often happens. But if you start to get quite different answers, then you know, you know, maybe there's a problem. So there's something about having real clarity on who you are and what you stand for. True. And, and that's consistent in every touch point. Um, and people often forget that the salesperson is, is in a super, super important touch point. And, and, you know, they're a human being, which makes it much harder than an ad. An ad you can control. A human being, you know, it, it's so there's an interesting challenge. And I, I've always seen it. There's an interesting challenge and often an interesting tension uh, between marketing and, and sales, where there has to be a mutually respectful two-way journey. Yes. But but the rep- reputation, I think, is another, another very, very important thing you talked earlier about trust. Yeah. There are different ways of building 
an organization's reputation. In post-COVID era, we are kind of stretching on this topic, but post-COVID era, the way the employer-employee relationship is going to work, and I see a lot of articles coming out, and this the resignation thing that happened where lots millions of people have left jobs and things like that. So when uh, the new uh, world gets established, and I, I often think about it, how is it going to look like? And all these aspects of who we are becomes extremely important. People are looking for more like an alter ego in organization because it's going to be a significant amount of time that an individual is going to spend with the organization. So early days, it was just about making more money or having that role and designation. But those frames in mind have been broken during this COVID era. So people have become more conscious about uh, thinking more deeply and introspecting and understanding what is life uh, all about and things like that. So I think, no, I think that's right. I think it's going to be interesting if we weren't having the current Omicron wave. There's a lot of organizations that are flipping back. There are plenty of organizations I know that are saying you're back in the office. And, and I wonder whether Australia is seeing a great resignation. I often hear the word the great reshuffle rather yeah. than resignations. People kind of just taking time, taking stock. But I think I think you touched on a really interesting point. I 100% agree with you that suddenly we can do work like this and I can see a little bit into your house and you can see a little bit into my house and one of my kids might jump on my lap and one of yeah. your... Yeah. And that's now, okay, and that's a wonderful thing. I think we've yeah. learned become more human in, in business. More I human think the human. interesting thing will be how much it stays and in which companies that stays and in which it doesn't. And just to close off the conversation on marketing, yeah, often yeah. there's a piece that's forgotten, which is a strong brand has a massive impact on the employee or employer value proposition. Do I want to join this company? Do I? We, we now look for an alignment of values before exactly. we... Exactly. We want to work with a company, join with a company, partner with a company. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I meant. So the value, the culture, the aspirations, all of those things need to match. And anyway, it's a new world that's evolving. So you've been uh, pretty strong 28 years in marketing, brand management. So in a way, you have done, as you rightly said, a brand running a brand is running uh, a company. So with that, tell me about this transition into the business that you are in. Yeah, so... I think everyone's life is a kind of book full of chapters and some chapters are progressive and some go up and down and some go back to the beginning. For me, it's a little bit of everything. So the, the big trigger to change was the loss of, of both my parents had an impact on my own mental health, got me thinking about my own parenting. I, I know when my first child was born, we were talking about it earlier, I, I was working for Castrol, whose global HQ is in uh, a town called Swindon that you know in, in yeah. the UK. Yeah. And I had a period when when my eldest was born where I was jumping on a plane every single week. And I so I probably missed a big chunk of his you know, first year of life, I think. And I remember my mother giving me a hard time about that going, <laughs> that's really important. Mm. So when mum and dad passed away, yeah, it got me thinking about mental health. It got me thinking about parenting. It mm. got me thinking about some unfinished business with medicine and with psychology. I'd already started coaching and investing in a few startups. In the middle of my career, I didn't mention this, but I was, I used to call them startups. But I now, having built my own startup, I now realize it wasn't a startup. It was at the point 
when the company Shazam had raised its Series A funding, its first £5 million, that I was brought in to be their first launch uh, marketing director. And so that was an incredible time, building something out of nothing, defining the Shazam brand, launching it, getting the first Shazam, getting the first million Shazams. So all of that came together for me. And um, I started exploring mental health and children's mental health. And I found I was part of a startup accelerator program here in Sydney called Antler. In that first week, I was in a session with a mental health expert, with a health dude, who's now one of my co-founders, some doctors. And we found this one data point, which is 50% of mental health issues start before the age of 14. But most go unnoticed and undiagnosed. You know, you were saying to me earlier, well, there are some cultures, maybe certain aspects of Indian culture where mental health is still denied as a a thing. But at least here in Australia, we talk about it. But do we understand the relationship between the brain, a child's emotions and their behaviours? No, it's something that the psychologists do. And our view is that a lot, not everything, but a lot of what the psychologists do can be simplified and put into the palm of a parent using one of these wonderful devices. I'm holding up a mobile phone so that parents are given the tools and techniques because as we dug deeper, we then found a bigger problem. So we, you know, you talk to any parent, you say, how important is family mental health? Every parent, like which parent says no, I haven't met one that says no. But when you, when we build our first prototype and we said, here, this will cost you five bucks. Most parents like, we're fine, no problem. You know, it's the ultimate test in a startup is yeah. a price tag on something. But so we had to go a little bit deeper. And what we realized is there are two groups of parents that really are looking for help. Parents where they know they need some sort of medical intervention and they're struggling. They've had to see a GP. They've had to get a mental health plan. They're trying to find a psychologist. And what COVID has done is doubled or quadrupled or even made worse the wait time to see a psychologist. So those people are in deep trouble, desperate looking for help. And then the second group of families that are going through a big change, changing, moving city, maybe moving schools, but the biggest top of that list is separation. If a family goes through separation, then there's a lot of, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of guilt. There's a big desire to be on top of emotional well-being. So we are Parental EQ as a psychology platform for parents to use. We try and simplify psychology and we do, it's a hybrid service. We provide on-demand services like access, telehealth access to a, to a counsellor through the app. Bespoke programmes on different topics from anger to anxiety to ADHD. So you already answered one of my questions which was running in my mind. So though it's a very important aspect of our life, but when it comes to business, uh, who is to in pay? And before somebody willing to pay, what is that you are offering? Those were the questions running in my mind. So you already answered part of it by saying, uh, when I built the app, I took it to parents, they say, oh, no, we are fine. <laughs> so we have to really find out who really needs it, who is willing to take action. And action could be in terms of the effort and time and money, everything. And you said there are two types of people. One, where they are already feeling the need of medical uh, intervention or they're already going through that. And the second part is uh, uh, change. And the biggest change is uh, separation. Uh, you know, moving countries could be one. Moving cities could be one. Uh, you know, Change of jobs, moving from corporate to entrepreneurship and financial issues. I want to understand a little bit of the product and services and how it is business viable. 
Yeah, so the product is, I mean, we opted to build it as a mobile app because we thought that's in everyone's back pocket. And, and actually, one of the ways we describe the service today, particularly for those two groups, is we say parentally queue, it's like having a therapist in your back pocket. Because mm-hmm. it literally is. If you're if you've been told, yep, you can have an appointment, it'll be in five months, and you've got a child struggling with anxiety, the stress that puts on the parent can be unbearable. The business model is is interesting. And I think, gosh, there are so many lessons from ha- having done a startup, from deciding to be crazy, some might say stupid enough to want to build a, you know, something from nothing. I think business models evolve. You know, we, we've studied lots of other companies. I think one of the challenges in, in Australia is it's still quite a young investor market. So there's a big pressure and a big expectation on, expectation on how do you make money and prove to me today you can make money. And hence, we've really had to go down that route of, right, who's in real pain? The, the thing with that audience is they know what a therapist costs. So if we can say, hey, it's a dollar a day, you know, we charge $28 a month. So it's less than dollar, a dollar a day to have a therapist in your back pocket. Does that sound like good value? I'm like, yeah, that sounds like, like, like good value. But, but even then, it is only today, it's only for those who really feel the pain. I think I'd like to think, I may be wrong, that the idea of family mental health will become like mindfulness over time, that every parent, every parent knows first aid. Why shouldn't every parent and, and kid know mental first aid? Parents, what we've observed is talking, particularly in Asian families, my God, um, talking to a child about anxiety, just for any parent, it's, it's a weird and often very uncomfortable conversation. How many parents do it? How many parents wake up going, I'm going to talk to my child about anxiety. And do you know the first one of the programs we have is to make that a productive journey. The first thing the parent has to do is to talk about their own anxieties, their own fears, their own worries, write them down and mark them out. You know, Brené Brown and the idea of vulnerability. uh, Men in particular are terrible at it. Like dads, 85% of our user base are mums. Dads are shocking mm-hmm. uh, at um, emotional well-being. And hence, you know, there's a lot of mental health challenges with grown-up men because we aren't very, it, is, it doesn't come easy to us to talk about our emotions. We're not expressive, yeah. And, and it's funny, I, I was actually talking to some Indian investors and, and we're, we're talking about some pilots with some Indian schools and the positioning in India is going to be less about mental health but more about help your child. Do you want your child to be successful? You say, (laughs) everyone says, of course, I'm going to give them the best education because education as an Indian parent is super important. You want them to have the resilience when they tackle the great big wide world, when they leave India and travel internationally. Do you want them to be a resilient person? Yes. (laughs) Well, this is where you start. So it's it's interesting learning of how you position the product differently in different countries. Interesting. So you have already launched in India as well, yeah? We're in conversations conversations. with a couple of schools um, to to give them the service so they give it to parents in India. So your current service is about giving access to psychologists on a much shorter notice than waiting on an expert for a long time. Plus, uh, cost-wise also looks like it's much cheaper than the typical uh, psychologist. I, I describe it as we've built a gym 
we've built a mental health gym because there are about 65 different programs in, in the mobile app. And we built this mental health gym. And then just like you go to a brand new gym, I mean, I don't know about you, but every time I've been to a brand new gym, even though you kind of understand the gym, you need some help. Like, where do yeah, I start? They, they take you for a tour. Yes. So we realized we needed the same thing. So today yeah. we have counselors. The problem is psychologists are all, they've all got six month waiting lists. But counselors, one, they're better, easier to deal with, but they're using programs, the psychologists that we've worked with. So that's our model. We would love to, in the future, I want to hire psychologists. I want to hire psychiatrists, because if you want to be able to give a child medication, then only a psychiatrist is qualified to do so. Got it. Got it. So how do you see this business in two, three, five years? What's the vision? The vision is... On the one hand, it's a digital clinic. It's a virtual digital clinic because what we've seen is if you need therapeutic support with mental health with a child, you've got to go to a doctor. You've got to get a mental health note. You've got to find a psychologist. A psychologist might then refer you to a, a psychiatrist. You need the psychiatrist if you want medication. You might need an occupational therapist. You might need a, a, some form of pediatric um, speciality. They all exist as silos. So the parent is having to find all of these crazy. They need to be in one place and it needs to be digital. Uh, you know, we were talking about how COVID has changed the world. COVID has meant that we can do this. We're very comfortable having these video calls, but we're also now very comfortable doing telehealth. The government is doing Medicare rebates with telehealth. So part of it, one of the challenges with health is who expects to pay, even amongst the middle classes. The middle classes go, well, I've got my health plan. You know, I expect Bupa to pay this. And so, so longer back to the two to three years, I would love to see the healthcare companies giving this to their clients because guess what? It will sell. Anyone who's clinically diagnosed with, with a mental health issue costs around five to 10K. Anyone who's hospitalized with a mental health issue costs around 50K. Our, our real vision is have the tools and techniques so fewer people even need to get there. But we're not good at prevention yet. That's that's maybe maybe that's a five to ten year vision. But the two to three year vision is digital clinics supported by healthcare insurers and other companies that are close to parents. So we are working with a company called Parents at Work. They their clients are corporates. Corporates have suddenly become very interested in mental health but they don't like complexity. So they don't want to sign up more and more vendors. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to go to what I call a kind of a people middleware company uh, like parents at work who, who have got all the banks as their clients. They give the services to the employees, but the companies pay. Oh, I got it. And we're just one of their services. Um, and we're doing some tests with schools as well, where, you know, if you're, if you want to show you're a progressive school, you give, a, you give a service like ours to the parents, shows that you care, also means the parents get involved. Yeah, I um, think, I, think I, I, I got the model and I like the model because if you're going to individuals, it's a very uphill uh, task. It can eventually happen, but it's very uphill. Whereas you go to organizations who are already serving these parents in some form or the other, that's the best thing to do. So you've already been talking to schools, you've been talking to the government, you've been working with the um, health insurers, you're working with the corporates or the middle companies who work with the corporates. So I think you have covered the whole uh, list. So 
you know, I'm pretty hopeful and that it's going in the right direction. I hope so. So a couple of quick uh, business questions. Uh, how long have you been running the business? Uh, just under two years, about 20, 20 months. Yes, 20 months. Yeah, close to two years. Anything you comes in your mind, if I say, what has been the most interesting, exciting outcome so far or exciting, any, not even outcome, you know, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of frustration on an entrepreneurial journey. What has been your biggest excitement? Let's not say outcome, biggest excitement. Yeah, it's a great question. I think, look, I, I think startups are lonely startups. <laughs> You're full of imposter syndrome every day. Like, yeah. can I do this? Can I, can we do this? Can we pull yeah. this up? Yeah. So, you know, last year we got some funding from a Melbourne-based accelerator called Scalata Ventures, and they wrote us our first check. So that that validation is, is quite is quite nice. Yeah. The, the, I think the most the most powerful validation, of course, is seeing parents who've come back and said this has made a difference. Awesome. That's that's the thing. That's why you do it. It's a purpose-led yeah. business, and it's hard. I think with purpose-led businesses, it's often harder to find a business model and even when you're talking to investors they kind of go lovely thing you're doing but is it is it a business or is it philanthropy and you're like no no, no. It, this need, we think it needs to be a business if we think to achieve scale and impact i, I personally believe probably because it's all i know that business is the best way to, to make a an impact if you can get the can get the business right so consumers are the most important thing investors because it gives you a bit of validation and then the third thing would be shipping our shipping product like having it you know it's like it's there it's live i can use it i can sit down and do a program with one of my kids they're they're the three things i think that, that matter that's awesome so when you say product it's the app like somebody can actually download log in and uh, access it it's yeah it's that journey of like you know scribbling things on bits of paper then moving it into neat post-its real ones or these days virtual post-its on mirror boards to really dodgy looking prototypes to a product where you've brought in a, a ui ux designer and suddenly you're yeah. like okay i don't feel embarrassed about <laughs> um pushing this out and telling all my friends hey look at the product uh, although even though the biggest lesson, I think, I think the thing with startups and, and digital innovation is you've got to just get over yourself. Like there's an interesting insight, which is if the value proposition is strong, then it doesn't matter if the product experience is okay or even less than okay. And often, you know, people say, and, and it makes sense now I've done it, that it's almost actually a good thing that the user experience is not great because it tells you if you're solving a problem or solving. Mm, mm. No, I quite like that. Uh, if value proposition is strong enough, then usability doesn't matter a lot and you can always improve it. So I remember a statement, I think it was by Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn, I guess, uh, which was, if you haven't launched, if you are not embarrassed of your last launch, you launch it too late. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? I think... Um... We, we, we launched our first, actually, we had a pre-prototype. One of my co-founders built it on some like Adobe software. So I could literally, I couldn't even ship it. I could just show you on a screen, like a, an, an animated flow of six screens. Yeah. That felt pretty embarrassing. And then our CTO is amazing. Luke built, kind of built the first, our first proper product last year, where in the middle of COVID, we just bought, we, we focused on one thing, which was just anxiety, middle of COVID first time around. 
then it started it still it was still not to be honest i never feel comfortable i'm my co-founders will tell me i think it's i think it's the curse of being i don't know i think one of the good and bad sides of spending all that time in corporate i call it corporate privilege is when you're used to having money and resources you know what really really good looks like and mm. when you're in a startup and you've got no money no resources you can do one thing at a time mm. it's mm. highly frustrating but you, no. you get used to it you're right you, so it happens to me all the time when i talk to my friends they give me a lot of ideas hey you're not doing this you're not doing that and sometimes i just smile and sometimes i say you know what for next two months this is my focus if i do even half a thing extra i'll be gone uh, and uh, it's tough it's really tough when you are on your own and but anyway quickly it looks like you have structured your business uh, from the start itself you said you have co-founder you have cto so when you started this business were you alone or you were sitting with bunch of friends and you said you know what this is something we want to do how was how did it get started so i was part of this startup accelerator program called ant yeah yeah and Yeah, I was in a room in the first week. It was a 10-week program. I did it because I was coaching startups and I was like I was the launch marketing director of Shazam, do you know who I am? And then I I would coach a bunch of startups and one day I just woke up and went, "VJ, you're a bloody fraud. These guys are building something from nothing. You took a technology that had already been established and, you know, built a brand. You did some good things. You built a brand and you got users. But you don't know what it's like to build something from nothing." So I'm like, "Shit." I better go and um find out what that's like. So my intention was to join the accelerator just because I wanted to feel what it feels like to be a founder. I didn't know at the time, but that week in that first week I met Francisco who's from Chile. He's, you know, a former research clinical researcher, incredible digital health expert. And uh, yeah, we kind of I just I felt a chemistry with the co-founder and we felt a belief in the problem we weren't sure what the idea was and then a couple of months down the line i went and begged one of my former head of development i used to work as chief digital officer for southern cross stereo the media company mm-hmm. um, owns lots of radio and audio properties and uh, yeah luke luke ran the dev team he built the 7 plus app and we begged him to um, come and be our cto because in the program you know we we needed a technology person and um, to be on the journey with us we felt so yeah we were the three that that started that's nice that's really good it's much easier the journey is easier of course the challenges of having partners but uh, it also makes it easy uh, then my next question for you is two years hence from the day you started to now is there anything that you recall recall you would do differently which was kind of a challenge you overcome it later Uh, you would do anything differently yeah lots of things i think i think the big so i i've spent a lot of my career in corporate innovation yeah and and corporate innovation is about it's it's about managing stakeholders and it's about strategic alignment so you know when when you're when you're dove you're a bar of soap and then you become a kind of shower gel and you you then you know the business knows you're in the personal care space so you can become a deodorant you could probably become a moisturizer and it's very clear what the innovation pathway looks like and you have a process and you have time and money and there's a there's a lot of slack basically incredible amount of slack when i look back in startup we talked about mental health and everyone goes yeah really important but we took a long time 
to get to the pain point. The thing about a startup, particularly if you're looking for investment, is the potential investor not only needs to understand your problem, but in a heartbeat, they need to understand how it's going to make money. Mm. And, 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 you know, however much we're in a purpose-led business, 95% of the investors I've met, and they're not bad people. They're not at all. They're some very good people, but they're there to make money. Uh, and you've just got to go. I almost feel sometimes being purpose-led can, can a little bit get in the way. And you've got to slap yourself in the face and go, the proposition has to be investable. Mm. And we, we took a long time to, to, and arguably, you know, even the model that we've, you know, feels like the right thing. Is it scalable enough? We know 75% of parents are worried about their children's mental health. We know only 5% of parents go to a psychologist. So there's this massive 70% opportunity there's just still a question mark around who will pay, who will pay, who will pay. Mm. So that's the big, big lesson is like nail the pain point. It's, it's the cliches in starter. People go, oh, if it feels like a vitamin, it's not going to be sticky enough. And you won't. Mm-hmm. Get it it yeah. has to be something. You have to go to invest and go, these 10 people, look, look at the pain they're feeling and their willingness to pay. That's mm-hmm. probably the biggest thing. Yeah, so basically knowing the pain. So did you do any sort of research with the people and asking them, uh, will you be willing to pay? Did you do that kind of activity? Don't well? believe anything anyone tells you. No, so um, when I, 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 did, <laughs> I got into career... Put a price tag on the app, put it in the app store, <laughs> then, then you see. that. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's hard, but there is something about, you know, the ability to hand over money is a signal of commitment. It's not the money. I mean, the money is the money. Of course, you're trying to build a business and you need to build a valuation and a PL. Mm. But there is an important psychology. And it's funny, you know, one of the biggest things is we launched this prototype for five bucks, right? It's the price of a, a good coffee in Melbourne. And it's funny. It's like, why would I pay? And, it, you know, you, you would, if we met, you would buy me a coffee in a heartbeat. I would buy you a coffee in a heartbeat. Yeah. Would you yeah. pay five dollars for an app? I actually think there's a, there's another format thing that might be holding us back, which is you know the fact it's an app is might for some people get in get in the way. We built it an app for convenience, so format is an important consideration. Mm. We need to think still a little bit more about is the app the best format? It should be. That's Sorry. very interesting. Yeah, no, I got that. I think I got a lot of uh, your marketing career and running a brand. How have you? And so one of your co-founders is a researcher. Another one is in technology. You are the one who comes from pure marketing. And so you understand marketing, you understand sale, you understand brand promotion because that's what you did. Is there anything you brought from your experience that has helped you in this business? Yeah, I think I have this sense, particularly when you're at the older end of town, I have this philosophy that half of what I know is genius and half of what I know is useless. And you've got to have the vulnerability and the openness to make make the best use of your genius, but also unlearn things and relearn them. So, yes, I, I understand marketing strategy. But the problem was, as I got into more and more senior roles in industry, I hadn't run a Facebook campaign. I hadn't run a Google campaign. I didn't know how to optimize for SEO. I know all that, that stuff means, but I, I wasn't using the tools. And in fact... All of that world changed as I became a you know, marketing director for the first time mm. 20 years ago. 
Mm. So I'd never been on the, the brand new set of tools. And this is an observation of current senior management. They've become senior at a time when everything four layers Change. below them has changed. Change, yeah. And it hits you hard. So mm. half of like, I know how to make ads. I know how to run a media strategy. I know how to do PR, but, but technical executional digital marketing. No, no idea. Mm, no, I, was... I, I could I could tell my head of digital how, what I needed from him or her, but I couldn't do it myself. I've had to learn all of that, and I don't do it very. No, well. that was a good, interesting insight. So, because you have such a strong marketing background, doesn't mean you can do it all. You've got to be depending on other people. But good thing for you, Vijay, is you understand the concept really well, so you can ask the right questions. You may not know the tools but you would definitely be asking right question. And especially from uh, the perspective of outcome versus ROI and all of those things you can ask, which a person who's not worked in marketing may not be able to uh, ask as good as you could do. So that's fantastic. So we have come uh, to the end of the conversation. So I've understood a little bit of your background, your uh, corporate career, your business. I We spent a lot of time understanding this purpose-led business. Very, very excited and looking forward to it, you know, growing into uh, unicorn and we all educate uh, especially the asian uh, background folks who don't think mental health is something they need to uh, you know talk about if you had to go back in your life and career you've come a long way vijay and this is your second stint of career which is entrepreneurship 20 year old what would you suggest him to do differently or what you have done well yeah i <sighs> I think it's a hard question. And when you said that, it resonated with me. You know, my grandfather left India. My father left Africa. I left England. I don't know, for me, for them, it was absolutely a better life. For me, it was looking for adventure. So I think if if the 20-year-old me, I guess, has a question about really work hard to try and figure out. I don't know if you come across the concept of ikigai. Yeah, of course, yes. I'd only heard about it like, you know, two years ago. And I've sit and I've I've got a 14-year-old and I it's some days when he listens to me, I'm like, think about this. I mean, not so much now, but as you get older. So I think I love that framework. I'd be getting the 20-year-old version to go, what is it? And look, I think, but I also think that the world is different in that society now, our kids. Well, there's no question they'll have major pivots in their lives. No question. So, you know, I think I think there's something about work hard to try and figure out what it is you love, what it is you care about, what it is you're, you know, you're good at and what it is someone will pay you for. But equally, have moments in your life to take stock of that because it will change. And I think in your in your lifetime, it may it may look like three or four possibly even more different things. Mm, mm. No, absolutely. So uh, you might have observed, and I have a 15-year-old girl, so I observe as well. They are much more aware than you and I were when we were growing up. At the same time, the influence of friends and surrounding is very similar to what we had. So while they have better awareness about looking at passion and interest and natural abilities and so on and so forth, there is still... Uh, equally driven by the surrounding. So my my input to my daughter always is uh, as long as you are working on anything with your natural ability, strength and interest, and then you incorporate other other things, you'll be fine. 
But if you make your decision based on what the friend is doing or saying, chances are you will have lots of friction as you grow. You may be successful, but you'll not be happy. And that's really, <laughs> I think that's really wise. And I think, I think the challenge is, you know, I've just been making jokes to my son about, I want, I'd love you to do a project on the metaverse and NFTs this holiday. You know, there's an inevitability of like Web 3.0 and they're going to be natives in that space. Yeah. I, I do worry a little bit about what social media has done is, is it, makes, it makes kids, you know, that much more vulnerable to, to caring much more about what other people think. And I, I, I 100% agree with you, but I think it's harder now it is to, harder. Be, it to be because, true yeah, to yourself. They are connected to a lot more people. But yeah, that's a balance. And we hope uh, our kids uh, uh, do the right thing. They are definitely much more aware in terms of what we did not have awareness of. You talked about Ikigai. If you ask your son, your daughter, hey, all of them know it. You know, We were the one who knew about it very late, but they know it. But this whole competition and uh, the the influence of friends is equally, equally strong. And that's probably the only worry I have. Otherwise, these kids are much, much smarter than you and I. So that's fantastic. The last question, Vijay, see, I've asked you a lot of questions. And we, of course, talked about the whole idea of this podcast is to inspire and educate Indian expats who left home to build a better life. But somewhere down the line, they uh, succumb to the regular average nine to five. And that could be a self-employed business also. I mean, people are struggling in there as well. So anything that I did not ask, if, if that was in your mind, which could be shared to create that awareness or education or inspiration for... I think so. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love for your listeners, if they're parents or carers, to go to the app store and, and look for parental EQ and, and have a play, whether it's to support family mental health or whether they want to just help their children be more resilient they can decide but I think it's been a lively and enriching conversation I think I feel like it's been almost therapy for me you know I do I think as we discussed the other day I still feel a deep connection with with Indian culture and heritage in in particular and this has been lovely It, it makes me think of my own family that I haven't seen mainly in the mainly in the UK so I think we've covered most things and it's been wonderful so thank you Asa. That's awesome thank you Vijay thank you for your time and uh, looking forward for uh, Parental Q to grow and add the value that you have envisioned it will add so thank you very much. All the best thank you. Thank you for listening to the Empowering Indian Expats podcast with your host Ehsan Ali. Hope you learned something about marketing and also what it takes to build a SaaS platform without any technical background. From business perspective, I liked his approach of collaborating with institutions and insurance companies than directly reaching parents. Uh, let me know what you learned from Vijay's journey. And if you're someone at a career crossroad, wanting to grow in your career or looking to transition into entrepreneurship, do connect with me on LinkedIn. I may be able to help you myself or we'll connect you with someone who's already been on the journey you are contemplating right now.